the thesis though was my downside's pretty much protected. The odds of it going to zero are a very, very small. I mean, some of some of these bonds were paying, you know, a quarterly coupon of like one point. You can buy them for five points, which means unless the whole thing blows up in the next four quarters or five quarters, you're making your money back and then it's all free upside. And the one thing that I was extremely confident in is that nothing in Europe happens that fast. So if it's not, <laughs> it's not gonna, it might blow up, but it won't blow up in the next year, right? And so that meant your downside was not always, not in every one of these structures, but you know, you do enough of these bets and if you put 10 on and you're gonna be right, most of the time you're gonna make your money back and have this great free upside, which generally then as I progressed through my investment career is at least in my mind, the secret to great returns is having a very good free upside built into whatever you're doing. I love this company, not just because of what they do, uh, but two of my best friends run it, Nick Huber and Mitchell Baldridge. It's called Ari Koseg, and they have a singular mission to help real estate investors spend less money on taxes. If you're an investor, a broker, or a property owner, listen up. This is crucial information. A cost segregation study can help you unlock the hidden value in your property by enabling you to write off components of your building faster. This means you'll pay less in taxes and have more cash in your pocket to reinvest or distribute to your investors. The team at RE Coseg are experts in this highly specialized field. They only use engineers to perform their studies and they use the highest industry standards for their reports. Over the past year, they've completed over 600 cost-seg studies and have saved their clients more than $65 million in taxes. For smaller properties, they do site visits fully virtually, which makes it extremely fast and easy to get your cost-seg completed. They also have an experienced team for larger in-person site visits. Big or small, they make it extremely quick and easy. And the best part? Their initial analysis is absolutely free. They'll examine your property and show you how much you could be saving. Visit recostseg, that's R-E-C-O-S-T-S-E-G.com. One of my favorite things to do is raise capital. Always been something I love doing. I love putting together deals. But one thing that is always tough for me is putting together the actual pitch deck, which is really important when you're raising capital or whether it's a corporate overview or a track record deck or investor reporting collateral, but putting together any kind of deck for guys like me has always just been tough. And so finding a company that could do it and not only do it, but blow your mind and make some of the best pitch decks you've ever seen was really cool. Enter Better Pitch. Better Pitch has taken the lead and is making some of the best pitch books I've ever seen. And if you think that not having a great pitch book is important when either raising capital, showing off your company, showing off your track record, showing off to investors, you're mistaken. I think your pitch book is one of the most important pieces of collateral that you could have. So I highly recommend checking out Better Pitch. They have an incredible team. They will work with you. And if you're a Fort listener and you tell them that, they will work with you on as many revisions as you need until you're 100% satisfied. So go check them out. One of the great joys of my life has been building Fort Capital, something that I have loved for a long time. One of the best parts about it is building it with our incredibly talented team across three offices, Fort Worth, Dallas, and Houston, and our team abroad. 
We've built an incredible enterprise focused around a mission of being the best real estate operator in the world. We really believe the better that we get at operating, the better that we get in investing. We've built some incredible technology that gives us the ability to see data that others can't and operate our company as efficiently as possible and deliver better customer service to our tenants and really everybody involved. If you want to know more about our thesis, I encourage you to go to our website, fortcapitallp.com, where we talk about why we've been investing in Class B industrial real estate since 2016, hyper-focused on it. You can learn how you can help us find deals, more about our technology and, and how we think about it. You can see job openings. Highly encourage you to check out our newsletter or follow us on LinkedIn. And you can do all of this by going to fortcapitallp.com. So I, I have to say, I met Simon at Reconvene in LA. And I remember Moses was like, hey, you got to meet Simon. And at first I saw you, I was like, I really like the logo on your shirt. And we kind of talked about that. And you kind of told me what you did. And I was like, oh, that's cool. But you were very under the radar. And, you, and I was like, so what are you doing later today? And you're like, I'm actually speaking on stage. I was like, okay. Then you spoke on stage. And I was like, holy shit. So as soon as I saw you after that talk, I was like, you you didn't tell like 95% <laughs> of the story. So we're going to get through some of that story again today. So I think a good place to start would just be growing up in Germany and making your way to America. Sure. And thanks for the intro. That's uh, mighty kind. So I was born in a small town to the east of Munich in uh, what then was West Germany, not far from the Iron Curtain, uh, which at that time was a little bit sort of the end of the known world, as I've called it too many times at this point. But it actually was, right? You know, that's where the train tracks ended and uh, the road ended because you just couldn't go to the other side. Really small place, uh, 800 people, you know, elementary school where you knew everyone, you knew every person's dog's name kind of place, you know what I mean? <laughs> where to this day, sometimes when I walk into a shop or something, they know who I am and I've never met them, but I look like my father. So they're like, ah, oh, you're, you're Simon. I'm like, really? <laughs> like, just, you know, that small of a place, right? I lived there until I was 16 years old. And at, I think it was about two weeks after my 16th birthday, I moved to the U.S., was one of those high school exchange programs where you come and you live with a family for one year, go to the local high school, and it's just complete luck of the draw where you end up, right? Could be anywhere, 50 states, anywhere. Those people don't get paid or anything, so it's a total volunteer-based thing, and most of the people that do it, do it because they themselves, either they don't have kids, or their kids have moved out, or they've, you know, they've been doing it many, many times. My luck was that I got placed with a wonderful family in Virginia Beach, Virginia, who've been doing this for years. They've had year after year, they took in a kid from somewhere, uh, usually Europe at the time. And uh, I lived with them. I was a junior in high school there. And after that year, which was a really good time, I went back to, to Germany and I went to school for a single day. I came back home and I called my uh, host mom, foster mom, whatever you want to call her, uh, Sylvia. And I said, hey, Sylvia, you mentioned I could possibly come back and we'd work something out. Is, is that still on the table? Like, cause this really sucks. I don't want to go back to this. <laughs> Not one more day. All right. And she said, yeah, sure. And it took a little while for us to find a solution because you, the visas are such that you can only have a student exchange visa for each level of education for one year once. 
So that wasn't all that straightforward. But what we eventually settled on is that they would just adopt me. So Sylvia and her husband, Bernie, adopted me. And that's how I then managed to finish high school in Virginia Beach. And because they adopted me, I was legally at that point then their child. I was able to go to the University of Virginia on in-state tuition basis, which is what I then did thereafter. So, How common is it that somebody would foster parent somebody abroad? Is that a common thing or was that a unique situation to you? So it's relatively uncommon. I mean, again, the the taking you know a kid in from overseas and have them live with you for years, I mean, that's already uncommon. Most people don't do that. I mean, again, they don't get paid or anything for it. They just do it because they're good people. But within that group to then, you know, remain, be adopted and so on, I've never met anyone else who's done that. It's unbelievable. So, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that was, uh, that's how I ended up basically staying in the United States. So, yeah. Okay. So you go to UVA and then what happened? So UVA aside from being the only university that accepted me, also, <laughs> also is, a, is a wonderful school and they have a great undergraduate business program. I did a whole bunch of things there, but amongst others went through that undergraduate business program, which has good relationships with several Wall Street institutions. They have a you know, career center and do all these interviews, all this prep stuff, you know, all, this, uh, all this jazz, you go through it. And in the end, I got a job with Morgan Stanley in New York to work. Well, at first, you just get placed in a general pool of uh, people that they hire into their sales and trading program at the time. Within that, then I managed to network myself into what was then considered the, the really hot and cool area of the, of the financial markets, which in 2006 or leading up to 2006 was when I started, was structured products, mortgage bond trading, essentially. So that's, that was my next step. Then. And that wasn't your first foray into finance because you did, you were buying bonds when you were like eight years old. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I, I, as I said, I grew up in a really small town where there just wasn't that much to do. We didn't have cable television or anything else. So you could either take a ball and kick it around a soccer field, or you could go to you know, the gas station, buy some chewing gum, or you could go to the bank. And so I went to the bank quite a lot and would just hang out there and read whatever materials they have lying around and occasionally buy some kind of investment product, uh, which clearly at that point I couldn't legally do. But they, again, being a small place, they <laughs> basically just had my dad's signature on file and they would just let me do whatever I wanted them. Yep. So, yeah. All right. So fast forward back. So you you get to Morgan Stanley. Describe one more time the the department that you landed in. So the, the department was, at that time, most of the big Wall Street banks had uh, what they called a client-facing side, which is essentially trading with customers and facilitating the, you know, lubricating the financial market, so to speak. And then a separate department was trading on the bank's own balance sheet and taking risk for the bank. Not that the guys who did the customer facing trading not do that as well, because everyone at that time took whatever risk they could, because uh, that's how you got paid. But we didn't serve customers in the department that I was in. You were a customer of Morgan Stanley and other Wall Street banks, similar to as if you were a, a hedge fund that was completely outside of a financial institution. The main difference between that and a hedge fund was that you had the balance sheet of the bank to fund you at an extremely attractive cost. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and will you describe real quick, what is lubricating the financial system? So, so what banks historically did and what they do now again is if I have a position in some financial instrument, in this case bonds, I need to sell it to someone. 
someone needs to buy it from me. All of that is still to this day done on a over-the-counter basis, which means you pick up the phone, you call around, you find someone to buy them from you. And the banks would basically buy that position from you if you want to get rid of it and then find someone else to sell it to. But for a period of time, they hold it. So in that sense, they're different from a broker. They're called market makers. So that's what the lubricating the financial system is. And because you hold them for a period of time, you do take some risk. But then again, the, the group that I was in was only taking risk. So there was no uh, even attempt to make a, a margin or a spread as you would on the market maker side. Okay, so this, so it's 2006. Yep. You joined what was like the hot team. Yep. And they were doing, were they doing commercial mortgage-backed securities? Uh, what was the buzzword? Every, every type of, they called it structure product, but the, the biggest was commercial mortgage-backed securities, residential mortgage-backed securities, oftentimes subprime, CDOs, CLOs, aircraft leasing securitizations, credit card securities, you name it. Like everything was securitized at that time, right? And the more layers of securitizing you could do, and the more complex it would be, the more you got paid to do it, essentially. And the more risk you put on, the more you got paid, right? Because As a young person, when you were watching it, was it dawning on you that that was the case? Or is it only in hindsight that you were layer, like the more complex, the more risk you took? Look, when, when you start in a seed, and I don't know if that's still the case today, I suspect oftentimes it is. You start in a seed like that. It's not like you get a big training before. And yes, you have two weeks of training was, you know, this is how you turn on a computer. Here is how you get your badge. Excel works like this, add these two cells together and don't say these things on email, right? That's, that's your training, right? And then you get sat down on a trading desk next to some guys who've been doing this for 20 years and they give you a clipboard at that time. You got a clipboard and say, hey, record my trades. And you're like, uh, what, what, uh, shut up, record my trades, right? Yeah. And you're like, oh, fine, I'm just going to get going here. And it takes you quite a while to even understand what the hell is happening around you, right? Like you know, all these hand gestures and not that I worked in the pit, but still, there's a lot of a lot going on on the trading floor. And as you develop a bit of a sense of that, you know, you hear things and sometimes they don't make sense and sometimes you just can't work them out. And it's only later really that you can really pinpoint the ones that never made sense or you just didn't get them at the time. But there were definitely moments where you look back now and you're like, wow, someone told me about this and it seemed like such a dumb thing to do at the time. Yeah. But obviously you didn't say a word, right? I mean, you're the new kid and like, you know, here are the people who have been doing this for all their lives. They know what they're doing. You sit there and listen and you're trying to figure it out. And then 10 years later, you still haven't figured it out. And you're like, okay, it was actually a dumb thing. Yeah. Right? So, <laughs> All right. I'll preface it by saying it wasn't you that caused this. <laughs> no. But if you go to Wikipedia, the team that you sat on has a, this, a world record. They're, you're in second place That's for right, the biggest yeah. loss ever taken on a trade. It was nearly $10 billion. That's correct. Yes. Which is now teeing up what's about to become a wonderful story. Yes. So you're still young, you're fresh, you're green blood on the team. When did you start seeing that something was massively wrong? I mean, this was about a year into it, right? So in, in 07, the subprime side of the business started taking real big hits. And the uh, interesting elements about that 10 million, billion, not million, billion <laughs> loss is actually, there was a guy on the team who made six. This is the net number, right? So it's, it would have been 15 otherwise, or almost 16. Oh, he made six. <laughs> he made six, right? You know, uh, <laughs> and, and that started earlier. So at first, those direct subprime shorts that this small team or the sub team within the bigger team had on 
started making money and you noticed that something was changing because not that you couldn't see everything everyone was doing, but you would hear what was the daily P&L and all of a sudden the numbers became much, much bigger. And this at first positive numbers, right? And then they stopped being positive all of a sudden and then they became negative and then, you know, John Mack was on your trading floor all of a sudden. You're like, okay, this is definitely not a good sign. Like this guy I've never seen except for on TV, right? Um, he was the CEO at the time. Very famous guy on Wall Street. No, I didn't interact with him, but just seeing him, you know, a few feet away from you, uh, yeah, you definitely knew this wasn't going the right way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. so you start seeing this. This is well before Lehman, by the way, right? This is all a year before Lehman at this point. So. This is a year before yeah, Lehman? Yeah, this is a year before Lehman. So were the markets being alarmed or were just was it just alarming at Morgan Stanley? No, this was in the subprime market, right? And because the subprime market was the juiciest piece of the market, it was the one that had the most second generation securitizations attached to it. So most of the CDOs and so on, that the, the real carnage came from these second level securitizations attached to the stuff that originally was the juiciest, right? Because if you have the most spread to work with, you can structure more and, you know, distribute more money around the structure, right? And that happened well, well before, as I said, at least a year before Lehman, that was already carnage in that world. Now, in the overall financial market and even in the US housing and mortgage market, it was a relatively small percentage. I don't remember the exact number, but something like 15% of the overall mortgage market, maybe it was 20, I don't know, was subprime. So the overall market was still completely healthy at this point, And everyone outside of this small, relatively small world even though the losses are starting to come in in a big way, outside of the small world thought, you know, that's those guys' problem. That's not going to affect me with my high-quality borrowers and my high-quality whatever I have, right? Yeah, that, that was there. And, and real quick, the dumb question, wasn't the one of the issues that they were, they were ranking subprime mortgages and finding a way to, to treat them as like class AAA rated That's right, that's right. Bonds? I mean, that the very simple answer is, may not be so simple if you haven't lived this, but is in these structures you would tranche, right? And you would have, let's say, $100 of mortgages in them. And the top bit, so the best bit, would be 60 cents of that or $60 out of the 100. And then the bottom would be different tranches. And when losses were allocated in the structures, they would come from the bottom up, as they said. So the first $5 would be wiped first and the next $10 would be wiped and so on and so forth. Now, Somewhere in the bottom of these slimmer tranches is what was the triple B or double B tranche. So that was not the very bottom, but it was up a little bit. Now, what they then did is they took a hundred of these structures and they would take all of the triple B tranches from these. And if you assume there is a, a, a low correlation between these triple B tranches taking a loss, because the different structures have different mortgages in it, right? Some whatever underlying bores, right? They're always different. Then you would come to the conclusion that it's extremely unlikely that all hundred of these triple B tranches get hit at the same time. So some portion of these, if you then again have this kind of structure where the loss is allocated from the bottom up, would be extremely high quality credit. And so that's how they created essentially triple A's out of these triple B's. Yeah. And it worked for a long time, right? It's not like- Oh, it did? It, was, it, it did work. And what what essentially wasn't factored into any of these models is that the entire housing market in the United States would drop at the same time because that had really never happened before, right? There'd be a savings and loan crisis. Texas was very badly affected, but 
New York wasn't or San Francisco wasn't, you know, whatever. Whereas in the great financial crisis, the entirety of the U.S. housing market was affected. And so the correlation between these different deals, instead of being whatever, 0.1 or 0.2, whatever the rating agencies were convinced of by people who had my job, I guess, to convince them of, it was more like 0.8 or 0.9. And that meant instead of having diversification between these deals, there wasn't any. All right. So John Max on the floor, PL starting to get negative, but you said there was like a year between that and Lehman. That's right. So what did that year look like for you? Were you just still on the trading floor or did your job start to evolve? So during that time in, in my specific world, what then slowly started happening is, right, people were losing money, people were getting fired, teams started to shrink, but I mean, equity markets were still getting to all-time highs and people by and large hadn't really factored it into this dramatic situation that it then later became. And the two interesting elements for me out of that were one, they stopped hiring new juniors. So, and the, the top ranks started to thin out. So automatically there were a lot fewer people available to do the work and the work still had to be done. So you got more, or I got more responsibility much quicker than in the more traditional way of progressing through your career. Because there would always be you know, a VP ahead of you or so on. All of a sudden there might not be a VP or an associate ahead. And then you as the analyst have to fill that gap. So that was one. And the other was it started being the first time where you could where I saw that the mass of market participants really got it wrong. This was, you know, if you had the seat that I had, it was very clear that really bad stuff is coming. Now, I didn't know Lehman was going to go bust, but I knew that Lehman had boatloads of this stuff and that they weren't marking it correctly because they had exactly the same balance sheet that Morgan Stanley had. If we're losing this much money, they should be losing the, I mean, you know, equal yeah. equal volumes of money, right? Or at least equal direction or Barclays in, in, in Europe or any of the banks, right? They all had this, but it wasn't, that wasn't the general perception, right? It was a perception that this is a problem for countrywide mortgages and Morgan Stanley and various others. And that was a real eye-opening experience for me that the vast majority of professionals, and we're not talking about the guys on CNBC or so on that just watch it after they have their whatever job, done and they come home at night. No, these are people who do all day long investments or markets related stuff, still didn't see this at all. And that was an interesting experience to see that that can happen because to make big money, that's the situation. I mean, I didn't realize it at the time, but that's sort of the first time I saw it when the mass of people didn't see it. So what'd your day look like when Lehman went under? To be honest, around that period of time, every day kind of blends into one, but it was some version of you'd come in, You'd have your book of bonds that you were supposed to tend to. There's an incredible news flow. All the stocks start dropping. Most of the senior guys, all they do is sit there and refresh the stock price all day long because 20 years of life savings is in whatever stock, in this case, Morgan Stanley stock, that they were working at. You didn't have this, right? Because you're brand new, so you have no real risk um, involved in any of this. Around. You're just looking around, like everyone losing their head. And you don't have a whole lot to do because there's no one trading, right? There's nothing going on. The market is frozen. The bid-ask spreads are huge. So you just sit there and at the end of every day, you mark down your book and it's another $10 million lost, another $50 million. At some point, it's just numbers with zeros on it, right? So it was, uh, it was an interesting experience, but you were mostly a spectator, even though you were in the middle of it, you're still just watching other people's reactions to it largely. 
Okay, I'm, I'm going to spoil the ending of the story because we're going to get into talking about how we get to the end. But one of the things that captivated me the most is the story that you have compounded capital from about that period of time, a million dollars into a portfolio today of about 250 million. That's right. Yeah. And it started here. So I spoiled the ending, sorry. But now we're going to tell a really cool story. So the world's falling apart. You don't really have anything to lose, so you're just in the middle of it. Yep. Your team was 80 when you joined it. Yep. And then basically by the end, it was just you. Yeah, in Europe, uh, in between, I started in New York, but very quickly moved to London. Yeah, uh, by the end, it was just me, and then there was another guy. And York. when it was just you, what was your day-to-day, -day and what thesis did you start forming? So at that point, we'd gotten rid of the vast majority of the risk that was within this group and, and other groups had passed on to us because we got pretty good at getting rid of risk. And what you could see then, so this was 2012, but what you could see over the last... Oh, this was 12. Yeah, I was there for six years. Yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. I was there for a long time. And I mean, partially, again, because there wasn't such a great opportunity outside and partially because it was actually quite interesting and I got a huge amount of responsibility early on. And I worked with, at the end, a core team that was extremely nice, good, smart people. Some of the best people I've ever worked with. Yep. And some of them I'm still very close to. And what you could see is that from 2010 to 2012, it became, the job became a lot easier. Stuff stopped falling. Some things started recovering. It just was pretty clear that for the institutional size uh, that I was living in at that point, the floor had been reached. I mean, that was amply clear to anyone at this point, right? I left then in 2012, and I guess what I then did, which is probably not what other people did at the time, is I took whatever very small amount of capital I had and bought the extremely uninstitutional end of this market, right? Like bonds that were worth a few thousand dollars here or there at that time, personally. So, yeah. And those had not nearly uh, recovered as much as the institutional size of, of the market. Why was nobody else buying them? Because who the hell on Wall Street buys anything for $1,000? But even individuals or smaller players didn't see it? Well, I mean, who... It was so complicated? Not so much so complicated, but the, ultimately that, that, it's called that structured product world was relatively small, right? I mean, there's not that many people in the first place. The risk takers and the really smart people in that world at that point <laughs> had done what I didn't, which was way smarter what they did, just moved into seats where they were able to use institutional capital to play in this market and use their knowledge on a vastly larger scale. And again, if you know what you're doing and you can deploy capital in the tens or hundreds of millions, you will definitely not waste your time buying anything for a thousand, right? That just doesn't make sense. So the amount of people who knew what they were doing and who were, in a way, <laughs> stupid enough at the time to play in such small size was very, very limited. Whereas the amount of people, on the other hand, who held this kind of risk, who had absolutely no idea what they were doing, was relatively large, right? It's a small French bank or an insurance company in Germany that had literally hundreds of these bonds on their balance sheet that were all worth you know, a few hundred, a few thousand, or tens of thousands at most dollars sometimes. Where do you go with that, right? They, they would give it to some small regional broker, usually a shop that looked pretty much like this studio. <laughs> yeah. Two guys and a Bloomberg kind of thing. And those guys would then try to sling it around, right? And there weren't many people at all interested in buying any of this stuff. I mean, there were some, but just not many. 
we're a podcast studio by day and, and, a, <laughs> and a clearinghouse by night in here. See all of our, our notes yeah. on the wall. And the thesis was, I can buy this stuff for pennies on the dollar. Yeah. Not only I can buy this for pennies on the dollar, but I can buy it for a, a significant discount to where the same exact bond or risk would trade if it was an institutional size bond. Right? Okay, explain that. So, so like, what was, the, what was the gap at that point? So let's say uh, a, one of those subordinated bonds, the, the entire, as they call it, tranche of that would be a $25 million tranche, right? And an institutional size would be <laughs> trading $5 million notional at one time. That might then trade at this point in time around 20 cents, right? So it'd be a million dollars deployed. But if you had a $30,000 notional clip of this, and that then, you know, that just becomes so small, but it not only became small because of that, but the price was also less. So the 30,000 clip might trade at 5 cents, where the 5 million clip would trade at 20 cents, right? Mm. So a massive gap on the exact same risk. Now, you had absolutely no hope of ever selling that to someone unless a broker-dealer at that exact moment had exactly this bond, then they would buy it, right? If I already have 5 million of it, sure, I might buy another 50,000 of it. But if I don't have it, I'm not going to bother even figuring out what I would pay for this. And so then that's why that part of the market just had not recovered at all. So you just made good friends with some brokers and said, show me what I'll call it the, the cheapest bottom tranche yeah, sub Show me whatever no one else is buying, whatever you've held, whatever you know that hasn't sold in the last month and has been sitting there. Because you know you're not going to sell it to anyone else. And at the time, did you like? Was it one of those moments where you're like, "I cannot believe I have this opportunity," or is it again a hindsight thing where you realize how good it was, or was it one of those moments where you're like, "This is literally like free money"? No, it was so obvious. I mean, at the end, so I couldn't do this while I was at Morgan Stanley, right? But at the end, I even left a lot of money on the table, leaving Morgan Stanley because I couldn't wait to get out and actually be able to buy this stuff. Yeah. So that. And how long did that so window obvious. last for you? So I only was doing this for a few months because then then I got smart enough. I was like, hang on, I should be doing what all the other guys that are actually smart doing and try to get a seed to do this in, with institutional capital and actually get that leverage, right? Because I only had a very, very small amount of money myself at that time. Right. So did you end up doing that? So I did that. What the effect of... So I did that. Yes, I guess that's number one. I did that. And I joined a New York-based hedge fund who wanted to set this kind of business up in London. So I joined them to be their London mortgage-backed securities trader and built a business up. Uh, this was when the financial crisis in Europe, the sovereign financial crisis with you know, Greece and so on was going on. So there was, for a period of time, a good amount of volatility in the market and actually an ability to buy these bonds still. But what then happened is very, very quickly, because of the bank regulations, mostly Basel III, as they called, made it almost impossible for banks to buy and hold any of these structured products. So the market then in Europe extremely quickly shrunk because no new bonds were created. And the old bonds, well, either paid off or they were bought by mostly US PE money who would hold them to maturity. So the actual investable universe between 2012 when I joined to 2014 when this more or less ended, shrunk probably by a factor 10x or so. It became almost impossible to do this as a trading job. So that was basically the end of my mortgage-backed securities trading days. How did you fare out on what you did buy? So in terms of my, my, my work, those did well. 
the risk appetite that I had versus the more senior partners was, uh, was, was different. As many Americans do, they view anything outside of the US as inherently way more risky than may actually be in reality. And that's not a dig at anyone. I, yeah. I get it. Like this is you we know, talked the about greatest financial today. market in the world, right? By, by miles and has a lot of advantages, but that doesn't mean everything outside is crap. But anyhow, so wasn't able to really put on that much risk. So that was fine, but wasn't a great success. The very small stuff that I held personally yeah. at that point was like what I generally bought was really long-term bets. So there wasn't much happening there yet. But then later on, those those bonds returned like on average, probably about 10 times, maybe more of the money that I invested. And that formed then later my seed capital for going into the, the real estate business, which was two stages later in my career at this point still. So, Okay, we'll get there in one more yeah. question. Sure. The thesis though was my downside's pretty much protected. The odds of it going to zero are a very, very small. I mean, some of some of these bonds were paying, you know, a quarterly coupon of like one point. You can buy them for five points, which means unless the whole thing blows up in the next four quarters or five quarters, you're making your money back and then it's all free upside. And the one thing that I was extremely confident in is that nothing in Europe happens that fast. So if it's not, <laughs> it's not gonna, it might blow up, but it won't blow up in the next year, right? And so that meant your downside was not always, not in every one of these structures, but you know, you do enough of these bets and if you put 10 on and you're gonna be right most of the time, you're gonna make your money back and have this great free upside, which generally then as I progressed through my investment career is at least in my mind, the secret to great returns is having a very good, free upside built into whatever you're doing. All right. I'm dumb and I'm from Texas. Why does one year matter? So you said you bought it. Why, so, why does one year very, matter? Very simple. So let's say a bond that had par value of 100, right? You're buying it at, I'm just picking numbers here, at 5%. So you're paying $5 for that 100. And it pays a coupon, let's say, of 5%, right? Well, but it pays that coupon on the 100, right? Oh, yeah. So basically, after one year, you've made all your money back. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. So, because you bought it so cheap, right? If you pay 100, then the five points that you get makes no difference. But yep. if you pay five, then that's actually 100% of your money, right? So, you don't have to do that all that often before you make your money back. And then everything else is basically free upside, right? So, basically, buy so low. In this there's case, there's no that's, downside. That's, and there's right. only sunny skies ahead. Okay. Yeah. All right, so then you go and on. And spread it around a bit, right? If you do it once, you might still get hosed, but if you do it 10 times, the odds that all 10 go against you are just really, really low, right? So then you go to the hedge fund that lasts for a couple of years, mm -hmm. and then what happened? So because the, the, the trading world essentially disappeared in Europe, not exactly, but it kind of did, what I then convinced my partners, I guess in this case still, was that we need to go into the real asset world, right? Because this this world that we essentially were the, the end point of started somewhere, right? Someone made a loan to someone somewhere and then repackaged it and sold it as a bond. Now, if the bonds don't exist anymore, and that's why we don't have our job, that also means the loan down the line doesn't exist anymore. And within Europe especially, not only did you have this channel of financing for the economy and for the real estate business especially go away, but what you also had is that banks that used to have, I guess, whatever, 50 times leverage on their equity capital had to rein that into 10 times leverage, let's say, 
roughly speaking, which meant they couldn't lend as much as they wanted to anymore either. And within Europe, that meant that especially the European periphery and let's say non-favorite sectors of the economy from a political perspective were extremely credit starved. Meaning that if a bank still has lending capacity, they'll lend it to consumers, small, medium businesses before they lend it to a real estate developer. Because that's not a politically, no one's going to blow their political capital on saying, hey, banks must lend to developers, right? Or professionals in any way. Which meant there were pockets of Europe where it was literally impossible for people to borrow. And I thought, well, this is not exactly what I've been doing, but this is about as close as I'm going to find anything. And then must be opportunity. And uh, lo and behold, there was. Yes. So then after trying a few things, set up a commercial mortgage lending operation in Ireland. That's, that's, uh, th- that was the next step. And how long was that window of, of you seeking and looking for that opportunity? A year? Or? Yeah, probably at least a year, right? Because you, I mean, again, it's something that you've never done before. So I don't have any clue how do you do it. I mean, I have an inkling that there should be opportunity, but I've never made a loan in my life, right? So I don't even know what that means, to be honest. I'd never even borrowed at this point in my life. I never bought anything with a loan. Yeah. So <laughs> this was very far in a way, but still not, not a million miles, right? And then you go and you check out, you know, fly to Greece, talk to a lot of people, like must be opportunity around here. And then you do the same, go to Italy, go to Spain, and go to Germany. And anyway, you know, it takes a while to sort of gather the facts and and start understanding what matters to be a lender, right? For example, that the uh, legal environment and the enforcement process in the courts is is hugely important, which again, nowadays you look back and think, yeah, what, what else would matter? I mean, of course, that's one of the top five things for a lender. But if you hadn't dealt with the actual enforcement side of, of, a, of a loan ever, it takes you a while to figure that out. Yeah, take me at least a year to go through that process. Yeah. Okay, so you set up a commercial lending for Ireland. Well, at first it was a little bit, it was supposed to be a bit more pan-European, but very quickly I realized, well, A, it's just me by myself here, so language barrier in Europe is always an issue. I do speak English, I speak German, that's it. <laughs> so trying to do loans in Spain without speaking Spanish, already challenge number one. But then also generating the deal flow and dealing with some of the back end of a lending business. Ireland was the obvious choice for two things is it was completely empty. There was no one lending at all. And the legal environment from a lender's perspective is for European country, uh, lender friendly for professional lending. If you lend to consumers, different story. But if you lend to professional investors, you can enforce without having to go to court or deal with a lengthy process. Not always, but generally. Yeah. Okay. How much did you raise? So started with a hundred million that was actually supplied by the firm that I was still with at that time, even though I wasn't doing that much of the of the mortgage trading, they supplied that and then raised, I'd say another 200, maybe 250 on top from various financial institutions. So overall, maybe 300, 400 million that we then deployed over a number of years from, I mean, this started small, right? You don't start day one and all the money is out. You make a loan here, you make a loan there. But from 2014, 14 over a period of two years, roughly, we deployed that. And then it went afterwards for a little while, but my active involvement then scaled down massively at that point because I sort of set up the team. And well, at some point, people who are on the ground are going to do the job better than you flying in from London and you know running around town uh, or around the country trying to do it for them. But yeah, so roughly, fr- roughly that much. So you, you started 2014, like you said, didn't 
really know a whole lot about lending. Yeah, it was probably actually 13. I mean, you know, it's like yeah. all these things are fluid processes, but, but yeah. But if the question's really like, what are like the key takeaways by 2016 that you're like, okay, I understand, like here's something I learned in the lending business that you can only learn by being in the lending business. I mean, there was like, there's a lot, right? Every yeah. time I went through a career change, there was a lot. Um, and every time I did it, I thought I knew a lot more than I actually did when I went into it. But it starts from simple things that are directly related to the lending, right? How how do you actually, like, what's a loan document look like? I mean, it's a professional loan document in Europe is an LMA, London Market Association, or I don't even know, that, but it's <laughs> called the LMA, which is what the London big banks and the London market uses. That's the standard template. That's a 100 to 300 page document, right? You've got to learn how that works. Then you have to learn how enforcement works. You have to uh, then learn what a borrower actually cares about, what you care about, what your back leverage cares about, right? Because you originate the loan and then you have to give it to another bank to give you leverage on that. So you have to make sure you not only understand their docs, but that they're happy with the docs you do. So that takes a while to learn. But in parallel, and this is what was extremely valuable for me, is you also learn about the actual asset that you're looking at, right? At first, my approach was very much, you know, this is a spreadsheet and uh, <laughs> this is the, you know, the rent coming in and this is the square footage of the building and yeah, this is, you know, basically done at this point, right? But then you learn, well, uh, rent per square foot in this location is not the same as one that might be only 100 meters away or 100 yards down the road. You learn that ceiling height matters. You learn that sometimes people don't pay the rent, even though it says, you know, on the contract that they do. And many, many little and big things like that. You also learn that it matters a lot who you lend money to, that the making a loan work from a lender's perspective requires a borrower that can pay and that wants to pay. That's not always the same thing. And to be honest, it was for me a combo of learning about the real estate business, learning about mechanics of lending, but also about people. Like so far, my interaction with people was pick up the phone and say, hey, make me a market on this. And the guy said, whatever, 25, 26. And I said, yeah, bought, sold, whatever. That was the extent of the interaction, right? There was not a huge human element involved, but when you're doing business in the real world, there's a massive human element involved. So yeah, it was a crazy good lending experience. For me. Okay, so I'm gonna take a stab and guess that you started lending into Ireland mm -hmm. and that gave you the wisdom of maybe I should start buying property in Ireland. It, essentially, that was sort of the, the transition, right? The, there was twofold. One is because the lending business was started when I was a partner of another firm, my economics were not all that great relative to the success of the business that I'd built. So my, uh, <laughs> took a little while for me to figure that out, but once I'd figured out that I'm not going to make nearly as much money as I should of this situation, that was one element of my motivational change. But the other was realizing that people were paying a huge amount to borrow from this business that I set up was called Origin Capital, to borrow from Origin Capital for relatively low risk loans that, you know, someone in Ireland was paying, let's say, 8% when the exact same, not exact same, but a very, very similar setup, a similar situation in Germany would have paid maybe 2%, right? And I thought, well, these people aren't all idiots, right? So I looked at what were they actually doing? And in many cases, they didn't care at all that they paid 8%. They would have paid 15%. They because it didn't matter. They were making so much money on owning and being able to buy the real estate 
that of course they would have preferred cheaper, but buying it was all the game that mattered in this point at this point in time for them. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to exit this situation here where I'm capped on the upside and maybe I'll join the, the Bora side of this world and uh, start doing real estate deals myself. Okay. So you leave Origin. Yep. And did you know where you were going to buy in Ireland? Did you have to spend time kind of figuring that part out? Yeah, it took, it took a while. Again, <laughs> you think, all right, I've been on the other side of the table here for a while. I kind of know how this is supposed to work. And then you start, you know, trying to actually get a deal done. You discover, well, there's a thousand ways a deal can die. And I've learned another one today. And, you know, that, <laughs> that happens over and over and over again. And again, there's a little bit of a fluid transition anyhow, right? Because for, uh, for a while, I was staying on as a consultant, making sure that the, the origin world was, was working and so on. I wasn't actively involved in it, but just making sure that everything was going all right. And I was still, in many ways, a, a deal flow generation for them because I'd been doing it for so long. But, you know, on the deal side, it took me at least a year of running around and, you know, as they say, kissing lots of frogs and just trying to figure it out before something then came around. So it was, a, a, again, a, a protracted period of trying things that didn't work. Okay. Take me through like a series of the deals that you've done, because as I understand it, now you're one of the largest commercial property owners in Ireland. We are one of By, the largest potential developers. Correct. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. What was the first deal that we finally so, said, okay, I found something. So there were a whole bunch in the beginning that all sort of happened relatively in quick succession, but I'll pick one that was a, that's a good example of what we did, why it worked and how it ended up playing Is this out. the one with the meth lab in it? That's the one that we can tell <laughs> with the meth lab in it. That's the, the, mm -hmm. the more entertaining, but really not that important yeah. part of the story. And I'm wearing a college shirt here today. And I said, this is the more serious version of <laughs> okay. me. Here. So, but uh, essentially, this is a lot of this is in and around the city of Dublin, which is a wonderful place. If you haven't visited, definitely put it on home your list. Home of Conor McGregor. It is, is he... home of Conor McGregor okay. uh, and Guinness and leprechauns and, and the whole thing. But it's a really, really nice place to visit. And Dublin has a couple of things that make it different from an American city. Not a million miles different from other European cities, but for you guys, definitely interesting. So one is that the center of Dublin is the largest, I think, if not one of the largest uh, areas of Georgian architecture, which is a period of the British Empire where the Georges were the kings. And so that's all historic preservation. So you can't build in large swaths of, of central Dublin. At the same time, you do have a growing population on all fronts. You have domestic birth rate that actually is above replacement rate, which is unusual in Europe, and you have immigration. And those trends have been going on for a while. And which meant that there was pressure already, even though the market was still very subdued, but there was pressure for accommodation and building space of all sorts. Now, one of the first areas that experienced it post the financial crisis was student housing, because it wasn't directly connected to the domestic economy, right? It, if you're a foreign, in this case, almost all were foreign students living in student housing, it didn't matter that much what the wage level or so on was in Ireland, because, well, you got paid by your parents, right? And they were making money wherever else they were. But there was no, or there was very little student accommodation at that time available, especially not the purpose-built which is, you know, any normal dorm that you think about just didn't exist in, at least not in large numbers, but you got a big inflow of students. 
Now, there are parts of Dublin that had historic industrial or commercial uses that don't apply anymore today or are becoming less and less important. One part of Dublin is what Dublin has done, like many cities, by postcodes. So Dublin 8 is where historically the Guinness Brewery is. It still is there, by the way. And a bunch of sort of uh, industrial adjacent things were. We found this this property. And, and by we, at this point, that was just me. Mm. Really. Yeah. And I got a call because during this period of time, and really to this day, when you have a reputation for doing what you say you're going to do, for closing deals on time and performing, people call you when they hear about things that might where, where that element might be really important. So this was uh, one summer I got a call from someone. I forget exactly what it was, but it was in the end of July, right? And I get a call from someone who had met via previous deal who said, hey, I know this guy. He has a his exchange not building. He has 10 days or 14 days left to close. And as I mentioned to you before, the, the market structure there is you exchange on a contract, you put 10% of a deposit down, that's hard money, that's gone if you don't close. And then when the closing date comes, you close or you lose that money. And so this guy was past the period of time where he had already put the hard money down, exchanged, but he hadn't closed yet. And he had 14 days to go. Maybe it was 18, forget exactly. And that's an extremely short period of time left. So I never met this gentleman before. I've worked for many years now with him. Never met him before up until this point. But I was in Dublin. I said, yeah, fine. it's fine. I'll meet him for a coffee. Met for coffee and showed me the property then later on. And it was a, uh, a rundown um, furniture factory. So uh, industrial building, but probably rundown. But in a part of town that was sort of up and coming at that point already in Dublin 8. And because of that very short timeline, I was able to get a, a good deal on it. He had already gotten a good deal. I got a slightly better deal from him. We had a, an agreement that worked for him as well. It wasn't, it wasn't totally one-sided, but I got a good deal because of a very short timeline. And it was essentially a, um, a land play because the building itself was in bad shape. Now, it could have been fixed up and probably done something with it. Of course, it could have been. But the, the real value was as a land play in this piece. The zoning... Like everywhere is, is, is slightly nightmarish, but you have zoning that is essentially concentrated to generate employment. This was one of those. So we what's that mean? Basically, means whatever happens on this piece of land should employ people. Yeah, okay. I mean, historically, it meant manufacturing of some types, right? In these kind of locations. Now, what we figured is, well, there's this big pressure on student housing. There's, you know, the, the first international student housing groups moving in, looking for, you know, things to buy. I was like, yeah, no, student housing, you need a lot of people to run student housing, right? It's a, it's a not too dissimilar from a hotel, right? A little bit less hassle, but it's in that direction. So we made the argument during the planning process, which is what they call the entitlement process over there, to allow us to put student housing onto the site. That ended up being successful. And the, the overall play, by the way, ended up not being successful because within this planning play, there was a land aggregation play and we failed in the land aggregation. This was one of my many learning experiences where I just didn't realize how to really pull off land aggregation. And, but in any case, because we bought it right and we managed to get the, the planning through, we made a, 
like about 4x return on this in about two years. While that value was being created through the planning system about halfway through, we managed to take our money out of the deal and buy the next deal already. Slightly bigger, about twice as big in terms of investment volume, but similar kind of idea. And so what we then did over a number of years is uh, buy properties and add value either by changing the zoning or the planning on them or leasing them up, refurbing them, whatever, whatever, right? I mean, to some extent, what you guys do with Class B industrial. But we did, because it's a smaller market, less focused. You can't just do one type of asset or you go for long periods of time without doing anything. And you, you just, I don't want to skip over that uh, one part. You said we pulled out some money to mm-hmm. go buy the next one. Mm-hmm. What happened there? So we essentially found a, found a lender, <laughs> not too dissimilar of a type of organization that I had previously built, right? So I knew a little bit how they worked. We paid them an extortion amount of interest, but we we got more money on that loan and on recourse loan against this asset than we paid for the asset. So in that sense, we got all our capital out and a little bit of profit. So that became a free option at this point on. And we took that capital to buy the next property to do the same thing. But that next property then was unencumbered, right? Because the the debt was on the previous property, so property number one, which then meant on property number two, we could do the same thing. You can't do it right away because it's a bit too blatant, but you know, you add a bit of value and then you you can do it then again. And so we did that one, you know, uh, and you do that 20 times and the numbers become bigger and bigger. And uh, I guess here we are, right? What did adding a bit of value look like? Was that painting a building? Was that no, I mean, look, Normally, you have to transform the value in a way where it's not like you can just... Um, or just buying it so damn cheap. Partially, it is, of course, you have to buy it right. But the the other element is oftentimes it's during this period of time, the vast majority of bad real estate was owned by people who either didn't care because they were so far on the water on their loan. So this next property that we bought, I don't know the exact numbers, we bought it from a seller who essentially got pressure from from uh, from one of the PE houses who ended up buying the underlying loan to get rid of it. And my guess, my best guess would be is that he probably owed three or four times the value of the property to to the lender. Yeah. Right. Which meant that for a long time, this owner just didn't care what happened in the property because what difference does it make? You're not going to recover any money from it anyhow, right? So a lot of these owners focus more on putting, for example, really, really bad tenants in, but then getting those tenants to pay the rent in cash and then pocketing the cash. And, you know, that's how they got money out. Now, I'm not accusing anyone of anything. I don't know anything, but yeah, uh, that was a strategy, right? Which then meant by definition, after a number of years, right? So this is 2016, 17, 18, you're closing in on 10 years of this kind of behavior you have really crappy tenants in some properties. I mean, like that just haven't paid rent in years and like everything is going badly. So sometimes it's as simple as showing up, getting rid of those tenants. Now it's a process. Ireland is a relatively tenant-friendly jurisdiction, but you can over time get rid of them. And then putting tenants in that actually pay the bills. So that sometimes it's that simple, you know? At other times it would be, shoddy construction that had um, fire regulation issues and hence you weren't allowed to rent a unit or many units or apartments or whatever it may be right fixing that sometimes that's easy 
it's you know putting fire alarms in or stuff like that. Sometimes it means you have to strip back a building and fix underlying fire separation issues. Sometimes a combination of all that. Now, again, not rocket science to do, but if you're either a bank that's foreclosed on a property or you're the owner of a property that's so far underwater, again, you're not going to do that. Why bother with it, right? So again, it does add real value, but it's just not rocket science, yeah. right? And so we would do this whatever the, the, the relevant strategy was, uh, and then overlay it oftentimes with getting planning permission to do more with the property than was already there. Okay. And real quick, just on loans, mm -hmm. are, are, do loans in Ireland usually mimic like a type of loan you get in America? It's got a set term limit. Yeah. Are they fixed? Are they floating? So normally, so it depends a little bit on the size as you're playing, that the smaller it becomes, so the more retail it is, that's up to like maybe a million or two. But once you're past that, it's very similar to the US, not similar to all parts of the US, but it's a five years standard term. You can borrow somewhere between, depending on who you're dealing with and what you're doing, 30 to 70 or 80% with some mezzanine kind of stuff on top. And it's a floating loan back in the day all over, uh, no, actually in Ireland still all Euribor based. So okay. Euribor still exists, which is basically like library used to be, except for yours. Euribor. Euribor. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, fast forward, how much have you assembled today? Like the, maybe you can give me the total size of it all, but then really like, what are you capable of doing with all this stuff? So what, what we focused on is for then the, the tail end of our, our portfolio growth period, which lasted roughly till about COVID hit. And then we, we took a bit the, the, the foot of the gas pedal, the bulk of, of the portfolio then was assembled in the few years leading up to that. We have roughly in Ireland about 200 million euros worth of, of properties. It's roughly split evenly into sort of standing stock and uh, so investment properties and development properties. We can build, and this is in various stages of the we can build process. Some we have full entitlement to build for about, call it a thousand apartments. And then we have various sort of future phases that are further down for another, let's say, 3,000 apartments and homes. So we can build about 4,000 housing units on our estate. And we have, I guess, about 800,000 of industrial standing stock, and we have 150 apartments roughly standing stock at the moment. Okay. And then let's just go back for just a second. Part of the thesis, as we talked about today at launch, from Ireland from 2009 to 2019, how much development happened? Almost nothing. I mean, very, very, very little was built uh, while the population was growing throughout this period of time. To the point where, just to put it in context, the entire island of Ireland is split into two jurisdictions. The north is still part of the United Kingdom. The south is an independent country. But if you add all of it together, it's about the size, population-wise, of the Dallas-Fort Worth metro area. So it's not a huge place. In the Republic, there's about five, a bit more than five million people. Two million households in a housing shortage, which the numbers depends on who you ask or so on, somewhere between 200 and 250,000 units, which is really staggering in the context of you know, only two million households to right. begin with, right? And so, and that that is largely a result of one population is growing, the economy is doing exceptionally well, but you have a 10 year window, and it's still sort of persisting, although it's getting better. But for a 10 year window. Literally nothing, almost nothing was built. No, so, and and layer in what's the tax regime look like? Why is it a hotbed for 
big pharmaceuticals, big tech companies to come. So there's probably three elements to it. One is the tax rate. So if you're an operating business in Ireland, you pay going forward the global minimum tax, but uh, historically 12.5%. Two is it is English speaking and is relatively similar business environment to the United States in the sense that it's common law and England, by the way, would be the same, but England is not in the European Union anymore. So it makes life a lot more complicated if you're manufacturing, exporting anything. And then the last is it's an exceptionally welcoming place for foreigners. Almost all Irish people, especially ones who are sort of my age and, and older, have either lived themselves abroad, have a brother abroad, period of time spent abroad, wife, cousin, whatever. It, it was an emigration-focused country for a really, really long time, and thus is really, I mean, especially for European country. Again, in the US, people are so polite and nice generally to strangers that you might not appreciate that. But in Europe, that's just not generally the case. And, and Ireland is a, a really welcoming place, especially for Americans, especially for, well, I mean, really for people from all over the world, to be honest. So it's, um, and it makes a huge difference when you're deciding to, well, where am I going to put my headquarters, right? Can I can go where they speak English, but the tax rate is real and people are nice. And it's not even far, you know, so. So you have growing population. Yeah. Great tax setup, very friendly to foreigners. Yep. Zero development over a 10 year period. That's right. Yeah. So then 2019 comes along. What was the domino that kind of got things going? Or, or was there a change in law or so, just, it was just time? So, I mean, you know, you have pressure and pressure build up. To be honest, it's, it's only marginally changed. What, what has happened is in 2019, 2020, you saw a lot more influx of foreign capital. You know, German pension funds started buying stuff and so on. That's died again, by the way, now because interest rates are up much, 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 much higher than they were even three, four years ago, right? As everyone knows. So, so that, that bit is gone. But it's really just the market had started correcting itself. And now that's dampened again because the availability of financing has, uh, has shrunk. Now, the government is stepping in at the moment over the last six months, they've, or over the last 12 months, they've uh, started doing a lot of project and both for financial assistance and also to make the development process and the entitlement process more efficient because that has gotten to the point where it's extremely hard to navigate. We're really good at it, but even our timelines have extended massively. But it is still, I mean, by far the number one issue in the country is uh, the shortage of housing and space, uh, both also for, for industrial users, but you know, obviously more people are touched by the housing shortage. It's by far the number one political issue. And maybe I've just missed a little bit, but like, yeah. why is it not getting done? Well, so you have two effects. And to be honest, I'm always surprised by how long lasting they are as well. But when you think about it, you have those two effects, I think it makes to some extent sense. It's still surprising that it's so long. One is during the financial crisis, the banking system collapsed in Ireland and you went from 16 or 17 banks that provided lending to development and to uh, investors uh, in the real estate field to all of those banks. And I mean, all of them either leaving the market or going bankrupt. And then you were left with two government-controlled banks because they were nationalized at that point. They're slowly being you know, uh, denationalized. I guess there's, the stocks are being listed and, and sold off. But those two banks are, are very, very cautious. And they are the big players in the domestic market and their focus up until very recently at least had not been 
to provide financing to developers because that's inherently risky. It's especially in a country of risky where the villain and the the reason in the popular mind for the financial crisis was developers who had overextended themselves. Sort of what you know, the Occupy Wall Street, they didn't have it, but if they had an Occupy Wall Street, they would have been an Occupy developers, you yeah. know? Like that's, that's, I guess, a good way of putting it. And that situation is persisting for two reasons. The more adventurous capital oftentimes is, is and I mean, on the lending side, right, is PE backed. So there's a certain return level that no matter who it ultimately is deploying it, they all receive the, the back-end capital from someone who either is a PE house or has return expectations of a PE house. So that means you have to charge a certain level, right? So that's that's the, the flexible capital that is there but has high return expectations. And the cheap capital that you have available in other places in Europe, like France, Germany, Italy, is bank capital. And when you think about it from a, it's sort of an institutional failure of the European market structure that if I'm sitting at uh, Deutsche Bank in Frankfurt, for example, and I want to make a career, I want to push something new, I have the choice of, I don't know, starting a business in Japan. Pick it, right? Huge country, massive opportunity. If it works, I might become CEO one day, right? Or I could go and suggest we'll do Ireland. If it works, it doesn't move the needle. Yeah, okay, I'm the guy who developed something in a not such a big place, right? It's not going to make me CEO for sure. If it doesn't work, I get fired. So I'm just not incentivized to do that. And that's to more or lesser extent the case all over the place. So that's one issue. So financing is still significantly harder to get and more expensive in Ireland than elsewhere in Europe. That's the part that the government is addressing at the moment. It takes time and it's not an easy fix. The other element is that because of the depth of the financial crisis, and it was basically a, a country that was hit harder than Las Vegas, right? But the whole country, right? You had a lot of people who knew or who know how to do this business leave the industry, right? They moved to the US, they moved to Australia. They just called it quits and retired. A lot of businesses went out and they never came back. So you had a loss of, uh, I guess, you know, Ben Bernanke wrote a famous paper about this non-monetary factors of the Great Depression, you had exactly this happening in Ireland, right? You had the talent disappear and you had the financing disappear. And both of those things take a lot longer to come back than you would expect. And there's not that many people where, like me, I guess, where the opportunity is, is big enough to spend their time and a huge chunk of their life trying to bring money and uh, develop things, right, from abroad. Irish people obviously are passionate about their own country, but it's hard to do when you don't have the capital. I'm so rooting for Conor McGregor to become <laughs> the president of Ireland. All right. You've bootstrapped. Basically, we actually, we actually owned the gym where he trained. Oh, you for, do? For, for the Floyd Mayweather fight for a long time. Yeah, the mur mural is still on the wall of him knocking Mayweather out. And it didn't happen, but that's what he was training on. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah so. Have you ever seen him in person around Dublin? I've never met him in person. I've met a lot of the people he worked with, his trainer and yeah. so on. Like, yeah, so, yeah. Okay, so we've bootstrapped to today. Mm -hmm. And why are you deciding to basically go and raise money? What's the plan? Why is now the time? And what's the plan for the money that you're trying to raise? Well, so I guess two parts to it. One is that the the historic way of how I built the business 
is something that, that is much, much harder to do when the market is not on fire. Because if you keep leveraging up and something goes wrong, then you're going to have a problem. If the market is on fire, then you can do that. Because even if you do something wrong, you're probably going to get bailed out by the market. And that that's fine as long as you're very confident in that. Now, I do think the market will eventually come back and it is, you know, it is an attractive demand supply imbalance. I mean, it's, it's crazy from a, from a provider of, uh, of the product, right? But that's not something that we want to keep doing. And much more importantly is because we have this relatively large estate, we need to focus on developing that out. And we can, I mean, not probably, we can spend in excess of a billion dollars just developing that out. That significantly exceeds our current financial means. But at the same time, we've put together a team and like a lot of this stuff in detail is done by my team at this point. A really good team that can find deals, that can take things through the planning process, and that can actually build stuff. And we have no capacity to fund that now because we're done with what we have. So uh, for, know, the next 10 years or so. Right? And if so. you build it, 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 the stuff you're building, will it be market rate or is, is the government put out something that gives you confidence or security that if you build it? So, so there are a lot of different elements to it. So it, it depends obviously on the asset, but essentially because of the supply demand imbalance, the, there, the government is, is and has been putting out programs that take that essentially put a backstop into the market. So if if you're building housing, especially if you ran into a situation where you can't find a private takeout and you wouldn't start building without a private takeout of some sorts lined up because you couldn't even finance it, then you will find a you know either a social housing project, an affordable housing project, a government agency that wants to rent it or wants to buy it. That is the main part of the business at this point. And then while that is going on, over the next few years, at some point, the the actual, let's call it a private market will come back, which in certain pockets, obviously it's persisting, but as a whole, it's it's challenging. Now, what, what is totally working is, is individual houses. The apartment market is where the government is the main player at the moment. Is there any private development going on right now? In apartments, there's very, very little. God. Yeah, very, very little. Even though there's a huge shortage. And within again the, the city of Dublin, you know, it's the only efficient way to provide housing is obviously apartments, right? Just because the space and the dumb question. Hmm? Is the city of Dublin the size of DFW or all of Ireland? No, is, all all of Ireland. The entire island, right? So yeah. I'm such an idiot. If you had if you had asked me, <laughs> is is Ireland a island or not? <laughs> yeah. I would have probably said it's not. Well, it's I mean, it, it's really interesting history. I'm a history buff, but it has really interesting history. As in, for example, it is the only country in Western Europe where the population today is smaller than it was in 1800. All, all other countries, the population today is vastly larger. Why? Because they drink so much Guinness and just... No, they had, um, no, they had a huge uh, famine. The Irish famine maybe rings a bell. No? I didn't even know it was an island. Do you okay. think I knew it was an... I don't know. All right, so when was the so famine? They had a massive famine in the 1800s, early 1800s, and they had huge waves of immigration. That's why Boston, Chicago, and so on is full of Irish, because they left post... I mean, not just during yeah. that, but there was massive immigration out of Ireland then for 
well, from that point until probably the 1990s. And it's growing again. Now it's growing. And it's an, now there's actually net immigration and has been for a long time now. But So I know Apple has like a campus there. Yeah. I think Google. Yeah. So when they bring thousands of employees in, where do they go? Well, at the moment, they're really struggling. Yeah, and they have been struggling for a while. I mean, and so you couldn't go to Apple and be like, hey, I need a loan. I'm going to build you 2,000 units of housing. You know what? I had not thought of that. People have done that now with energy. There was, there's a massive boom in data centers over there, like everywhere else, but in Ireland even more because of the big tech industry. And for example, Microsoft or so on have started doing deals directly. People who develop solar farms or so on sell them power directly because the power grid for the whole country was sort of tapped out. Yeah. They couldn't accommodate any more data centers. On the housing front, I, I have to admit, I hadn't thought of that. It's not historically how, how this works. Yeah. The biggest challenge with it probably would be is that in Europe, if you as a corporate take on responsibility for something, then you kind of own it for the rest of eternity, right? So if you start housing people now, I suspect you're going to have to house them for the next 100 years. Maybe Apple, so profitable, doesn't care, but usually companies don't want to take on you know, liability. They've been shedding liability, generally speaking, whenever they can. Well, Tim Cook, if you're listening to this <laughs> and you want to fund a couple thousand units of housing, well, we'd, be, we'd be happy to work with you, yeah. So you would raise the money and then is it pretty reasonable that the funding, the, the actual debt financing would be available to you or would that be a challenge? No, that's something we didn't definitely do with these things. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah that's fine. Um, and that's because the lending markets are opening back up or because... I mean, once you're a certain size, things change a little bit. Okay. So if, if you're borrowing large enough amounts of money, you can go into the Frankfurt market, the London market, and you can borrow from that. It's tough to do below a threshold. Like if it's less than 50 million, or maybe occasionally 25, then then it just doesn't work. It's not worth those people's time. So once you're through that, then a, then funding becomes a lot easier. Okay. So if you raise the money and you can pull the financing in, just from my little knowledge on Europe and in some of our discussions, a big part of this though is, can you get stuff entitled? Can you plan? I don't get the sense it's as easy in Europe as it is maybe in America to get some of this done. Maybe it is. But y'all have built like an expertise around this. So if I'm giving you dollars, one thing I want to know is everybody wants to know in development is like, can you get this stuff approved? Yeah. How, how so, do you think about that? So I, I have to say I'm not an expert by any means how it works in the US, so it's hard for me to compare. What for sure is is a challenge in Ireland is that the the planning system is uh, become much more litigious over the last few years. It's much more contentious. The as I said, the entire topic of housing is a much more contentious, much more political hot potato. Um, and one of the wonderful elements of it, uh, and, and somewhat insane elements when you're not used to it, is anyone can object to anything. So you want to build a house on one side of the country. I live 300 miles away. I can object to it. Sounds Even if it's in an area that is designated for housing, I can just object. I don't even need a reason. right? And so that's the first starting point. Now, that doesn't always happen, but it happens often enough. And then there are several layers to go through the process where you can object and object and object, and eventually you can sue to, to prevent the development. Some people have turned that into a business, by the way, right? So there's crafty uh, people who object 
in order to then extract a payoff. But that, that entire process is quite, quite lengthy. It's very expensive. Taking a large, let's say, 500-unit development through planning can cost you easily half a million, which if you then don't get it, it's just gone. So it's a, it's a, a challenging, expensive, time-consuming, tedious thing that's often not the most pleasant experience in life. But that's also why we, you know, why we do it, and that's why it makes money. Right? I always tell my team, if it was easy, everyone would be doing it, and we wouldn't make any money doing it. Now we have a hundred percent success rate on quite a large number of projects, and if you are willing to engage with the process and to follow all the steps, to engage with the stakeholders, you can a reduce, you know, the number of just people who object. You can then work with the municipalities and the city, often case the city of Dublin, but there's many layers of, of local government uh, interacting with these things to get their support, which then also helps. And last but not least, you need a really good legal team that when someone does come and tries to wreck, wreck your, your plans, then you can fight back, right? And so over quite a long period of time and lots of uh, scar tissue, we've, we've managed to do that uh, very successfully. And then once you have that, then you can go and get the financing and, you know, it's not that easy afterwards either, but you know, you, you can then make it out from there. People have asked, they said, Chris, you've gotten gray at an early age. What happened? And I'm <laughs> like, I used to do entitlements and development. <laughs> it, the main reasons why people in America hate it is, is uh, traffic and like blocking a good view or something, which is totally subjective yep. because people's idea of a good view could be, you know, I used to be able to see over my fence. Now I can't. Is there any other reason in Ireland people will tend to, besides the people doing it for fraud, are there any other reasons why people usually push back? Oh, there's, uh, you know, they might not like the color of the walls that you yeah. suggested. There is, I mean, for, for bigger projects, you have to do, you know, you have to engage with the people who run the cell phone network because you might interfere with their cell phone signal. You have to do deal with the traffic people, the water people, the electricity people. You're all the neighbors, people object for, because... There's a school down the street and they think that, you know, if people move in here, then the school gets overloaded. There's, yeah. I mean, the 10,000 different environmental elements that you could mess up. I mean, you have to do, we recently had to do a bat study for an industrial building where I'm not really sure, like there are no bats, you know, it's not like an old bell tower with bats in it or anything, but I don't really know exactly why you have to do a uh, deal with someone might not like the amount of light that falls into the kitchen in your proposed development. And you say, well, but you don't have to live in it. Why do you care? But that's all irrelevant. You have to justify all of these points. Um, the noise that you might be generating, the noise that the wind might be generating howling around your structure, traffic that you affect in another country, potentially. Again, uh, Ireland split into two jurisdictions. It's, it's really quite fascinating in a way even though sometimes it's the most frustrating thing you have to deal with yeah i think if anybody's listening it's not in development i'm botching the story a little bit but there's like a 400 million dollar four billion dollar development in america that's like not getting through because it endangers like a species of frogs or lizards i can't really remember yep and it's this one really loud environmental group and it's crushing this whole development to yep. save like a frog yeah yeah, and uh, yeah, that exists. And then you sometimes have to get in specialists that count a certain type of bee that is flying around. You another element that maybe you don't have as much in the US, uh, but that is big in, in in Ireland is archaeology. Right, so you have to dig, and if you find by 
in this case, good luck or bad luck, depending on which side of the you know, equation you're on, a Viking helmet. Well, then maybe everything is on hold for the next three years because you have to excavate the entirety of the site and see what else might be there, right? Or you find a human bone, then, you know, then who knows what happens, right? It has to go get the police involved, get the archaeology people involved. That might take three months just to analyze that bone. I mean, it's the, the amount of stuff that, uh, that can go wrong or delay you is, is quite, uh, it's quite fascinating in many ways. Uh, but it's all management. <laughs> it is all man. I mean, I'm telling you, there. It's as much an art and a gift of how you get these things through. I th I truly believe there. Are, you could have the same piece of land and multiple groups go about it in their own oh, strategy, sure. and one's going to get it approved and for one's sure. not. And your your team matters a huge amount. I mean, that's that's your internal team, your external team, your architects, your you know planning consultants, and so on. I mean, for for a big planning application, the, the just the forms, the filled out material that you submit might be a thousand pages, right? So obviously I don't, <laughs> I hardly know what's going on with this stuff, but it's really, really important to have a really good team around you on these things. And fortunately, again, over the years, I've managed to do that. So if you get a deal done or you raise money, are you just going to contribute property into a fund or is it kind of open-ended right now what it'll look like? That's quite open-ended. I'd say it's, it's, it's driven by what, what people expect. Contributing property, I guess, has a transfer pricing issue attached to it, which yeah. historically I would have just said, look, I'd probably not go through that brain damage with someone because someone is going to complain later on, right? It's just yeah. always the way it is, even if they're happy day one. But it, it's relatively easy to segregate projects, you know? So, yeah. you know, from this day on forward, new projects are new projects and the old ones are old ones. So yeah. I think that's quite all right, actually. All right, man. I'm bullish on Ireland. You've, it's you've it's a wonderful me. place. Yes. I highly recommend it. I need to come visit yes. someday. Yeah. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Fort Podcast. Be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform or hop on over to YouTube to watch full video episodes if that's what you prefer. For more information, you can check out thefortpod.com. 